Hello Healing, the show where we welcome the new age of healing with psychedelics, life coaching, and various energetic practices. In today's episode of Hello Healing, our guest is Brian Pace. Brian is a PhD in evolutionary ecology, founder of Find the Others, and Mind Manifest Midwest, both organizations looking to connect the psychedelic community while emphasizing the importance of everyone's unique perspective. Brian is also a host of the podcast Plus Three, where they delve deep into the science and politics of psychedelics and other drugs. Brian has also done important work in the cannabis scene and worked all over the world studying fungi and other important plants, which we'll get more into later. In this episode, we discuss why psychedelics are not a cure-all and the extreme importance of set and setting. How untreated trauma can have dire consequences. The agenda to monopolize psychedelics and why you need to know about it. The future of psychedelics. Which legal model makes the most sense and who will have access to these medicines. And we share some of our most impactful personal psychedelic stories. So, without further ado, hello, healing. Well, for more than 20 years, and actually, if we're talking drug reform stuff, I was doing some stuff back in uh, 2014 when I crafted a course for OSU um, uh, as a a graduate student um, for other graduate students on on cannabis. Um, And so uh, I went on to start... uh, OSU, become an advisor for undergraduates at OSU um, Cannabis Club at Ohio State that was for students who wanted to join the cannabis industry um, post-graduation. And um, I'm currently on the board of a nonprofit called Symposia, which is adversarial journalism in the drug reform space, independent journalism advocating for the full decriminalization of all uh, currently scheduled drugs. Well, that is pretty epic, my dude. So <laughs> I also read that you spent a year in the Ecuadorian Amazon studying microremediation. So if, I would love for you to talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So, I mean, um, I'm not a newcomer to the psychedelic space. Um, although I've been on like publicly outspoken about these topics for, you know, less than a decade, at least in any kind of formal sense. Um, but, uh, but yeah, after my undergraduate, um, a degree concluded when I studied, um, botany and mycology, I ended up, um, working with, uh, a group for a year. They were a nonprofit, um, Cloud Forest Institute, and there were a project of that was called the Amazon Myco Renewal Project that was using uh, Paul Stamets uh, technology, Myco remediation. Of, so that would be the uh, remediation of toxic uh, soils um, using oyster mushrooms. Um, so oyster mushrooms produce enzymes uh, that are able to break down um, toxic molecules, particularly um, polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons. Um, I'm trying not to get too in the weeds here. Basically, this was petroleum contamination left by the exceedingly irresponsible and evil uh, Texaco, now Chevron, um, 
And so they, they basically struck oil and spread it around everywhere and left a giant mess that nobody cleaned up and still there. And so um, I spent a year slogging around oil pits um, with a crew of, uh, you know, scrappy scientists and human rights workers, all funded by California dope money. So um, that that experience, you know, we did a number of things um, to sort of support that work. I think we set up an ecotourism uh, tour. We reached out to a bunch of my, mycology or mycological societies and did um, a tour of both the microremediation project that we were doing um, down the Amazon and then also uh, just sort of went on mushroom forays. And um, because of some of that work, um, I ended up um, being exposed to uh, ayahuasca um, in, you know, in a way that's a little bit different than um, what you see now. It's like now you can like, I suppose in 2008, you could probably find a website for a retreat center. Um, but uh, in my case, there was just a, you know, he was a shaman. Um, he was Kofan uh, living among the Sinoa um, in the Ecuadorian Amazon. And uh, yeah, he wanted about $10 for uh, <laughs> a liter of ayahuasca. He offered, he offered to, uh, to bless us. Um, I, I actually declined. Um, but you know, my, uh, compatriots, uh, had some, some leaves and some rattles shaken at him, some, some smoke blown, but you know, this was, uh, this was actually not while, while the ayahuasca was being taken. This was like earlier in the day, I guess. And, um, my first ayahuasca experience was actually, you know, four hours by speedboat in the middle of the Amazon, but uh, in this flooded forest area. But, you know, off to the side were some other, like, Dutch party kids, like, listening to uh, to Snoop Dogg on, uh, on a little, you know, um, little speaker. Um, it didn't at all um, diminish the power of the experience, though. Um, mm. So, I mean, it was, uh, that, that very first ayahuasca experience was absolutely um, beautiful, shattering, uh, life-changing. Um, I wouldn't be the person I am today without that particular experience, although it is among many that I've had before and since, you know. Yeah, wow. wild ride. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's amazing. A little different from the, from the yeah, $10, a little different from the retreat centers of today, maybe closer to 10000 for even some of them just for ceremonies. Yeah, so if you want to go down to Solterra or Arrhythmia, they'll definitely take your money. Yeah, it's quite the contrast. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I don't know. I mean, so I, I, I highlight that a little bit just because in some ways, um, you know, I think that it's important that people, you know, do their research. I mean, I had definitely done my research. I knew that I was going after um, in, in seeking out and accepting ayahuasca from a complete stranger, you know, um, miles from help. Um, but I have a feeling that a lot of people don't, a lot of people will listen to say somebody like me and, uh, it's kind of like having somebody chew your, uh, your information for you and spit it into your head. Like read a book, <laughs> like go, go to Arrowhead or do your uh, research. Yeah, exactly. Like there's there, Wikipedia is a fantastic resource. Like dig into the actual, um, you know, the neurobiology of these things, like think for yourself, like don't, there are plenty of people who want to be the middleman who's going to, you know, take your money and tell you what your enlightenment means. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. And you really got to be cautious, especially going into a foreign country surrounded by people you don't know. And I've heard many reports of some of these so-called shamans actually like abusing their people. And even in cases like sexually abusing people, which is just terrible. And is why, just like you said, it's so important to do your own research and get educated. Yeah, I would, I would agree. And I mean, you know, this is, um, this is an issue that uh, we have talked about and others have written um, about uh, for symposia.com. And I mean, I think that there, um, there's a lot of like, um, both positive and negative baggage surrounding um, psychedelics. And generally speaking, like um, I and um, us at Symposia would like to advocate for like, you know, evidence-based sort of um, reality-based assessments of what's what. Um, I believe that, you know, that psychedelics are powerful tools, mm -hmm. um, but like, you know, like a hammer, you can use it to put a hole in somebody's head or you can use it to build a cathedral. Um, in this way, I would say that I'm something of a psychedelic existentialist. Um, I argued in a piece that I wrote recently that caused some controversy uh, mm -hmm. for Symposia, uh, Lucy in the Sky with Nazis, Psychedelics and the Right Wing, um, that psychedelics don't necessarily have any kind of um, directional effect on one's morality um, or one's political beliefs. So, um, yeah, uh, I, I feel like I'm talking a lot here. What, uh, what do you got? No, me? you're good. You're good. I'm just, I'm just soaking it all in, enjoying it. Uh, yeah, and that's actually, that was going to be one topic I wanted to get into. Firstly, um, inspired by that article that you wrote, because I really enjoyed the way it challenged my worldviews about psychedelics. Mm -hmm. But before we get into that, uh, one question I'm really curious is, how have these med medicines most helped you? Hmm. Most helped me? Um, I mean, so I, I want to be, you know, very upfront that um, I, I, I took my first psychedelic when I was 15. Um, it was LSD absolutely in a inappropriate set and setting um this was uh, at lunch as a freshman in high school um and you know that very first experience though ultimately led to me dropping out of high school where i was very unhappy and had a extremely dysfunctional relationship um, with my peers uh, i was experiencing a lot of violence and um, i ended up going to community college for two years and uh, getting a two-year degree by the time I was 18. So in a material way, um, the insights that I was having on psychedelics by about six o'clock on that, on that LSD trip, and LSD lasts about eight to 12 hours, sometimes longer, depending on dose, so I was still going. Um, I had a conversation with my folks that I was able to tap into, um, you know, my real feelings about things and just, uh, speak very clearly and unequivocally about what my needs were. Um, so from the very first, I had this like um, forking in the road that happened that was absolutely catalyzed by a psychedelic experience. Um, 
since then, I would say that, you know, I've often said that like the biggest side effect I've had from um, essentially an adult lifetime of psychedelic use um, has been a, a rather nasty book habit. Uh, I think the thing that I've gotten from psychedelics more than anything is a deep sense of curiosity about um, experience and about the the world around me and about consciousness. Like, why is it that under the influence of certain molecules that mimic molecules that my brain already produces, like serotonin, dopamine, norepinephrine, am I able to have such drastically different states of consciousness where it seems like my dreams, my thoughts, um, the things that I'm seeing around me and the things um, that I'm touching and, and experiencing are all mixed together um, in sometimes um, what I would uh, characterize as like a mythopoetic kind of way. Like that to me has, is just an endless source of you know of rumination and i mean uh what's his name joseph campbell says like uh you know the the schizophrenic um drowns in the same uh ocean that the mystic swims in so i mean there's certain dangers to uh well altering one's consciousness in this way uh where it can be very difficult to sort uh what from what um that said you know um yeah, that curiosity has um, has led me to like look at some of the, you know, the darker parts of my um, my self perception of my perception of others. It's I, I would say, you know, I I've definitely personally experienced some of the Hopkins uh, findings that psychedelics have made me a more open person. You know, someone who's a little bit more open to novelty. Um, uh, to, to new experience, you know, obviously because some of these new experiences were uh, incredibly, you know, valuable, beneficial. Uh, that's not the case for some people, though. I mean, some people who have had extremely inappropriate set and settings, people who've been dosed without their knowledge or consent, which I categorize as something akin to a kind of psychic rape, um, you know, they do not yeah. automatically get these, you know, benefits from it. So that's one of the things, um, more than anything, that uh, I think is fascinating about psychedelics is that they're really, to, to even grasp a uh, a bit of them. One has to start digging into sort of an interdisciplinary, um, you know, uh, way of of looking at the pro the, the the problem question. Um, so yeah, uh, I, I hope that uh, begins to answer your question. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it brings up the point that while these experiences can be so healing and positive, we have to be cautious because psychedelics are not a cure-all. And that was one point from uh, your article, Lucy in the Sky with Nazis. Love the title, by the way. Um, <laughs> that while, yes, psychedelics are currently being used to heal a variety of problems, such as addiction, depression, OCD, anxiety, PTSD, and they're even being investigated for general pain relief. Um, a couple studies, uh, one from MAPS, for, it was a study on cigarette smokers. They had 12 of 15, so 80% of the participants showed a seven-day point prevalence abstinence at the six-month follow-up, which basically means that six months after the study, they quit smoking. And uh, another study I have here is 84.3% of patients reported an improved quality of life. And that was a Switzerland study on LSD psycholytic therapy. However, 
these studies were done with proper set and setting. A peacefully controlled space where subjects are relaxed on a couch with eye shades and calming music with a therapist on standby to reassure and discuss with a participant. And that's why we need to be so cautious because these substances have potential for abuse in the wrong set setting. And some of the examples that you provided in your article was um, the base and the Atomwaffen division, which are both Nazi organizations that uh, were caught with psychedelics and using them. Um, and so that goes to show that while, yes, they can bring us these amazing healing experiences, improve the quality of our life, make us better, they're not just a magic pill. There is no magic pill. Um, so, I mean, question- maybe they're a magic pill, but we have to remember there's, there's something called black magic out there and uh, it can cause <laughs> tremendous harm. That is a good uh, point. I mean, one, one of, this is one of the things where it's you know important to sort of cast a wider net um, and look at the the sort of ethnobotanical history of of psychedelics um, uh, as a whole. I mean, the Aztecs very much loved to eat peyote and um, you know have uh, uh, mushrooms that were uh, mixed with their their chocolate um, you know drinks. They also love to um, collect the skulls of you know noble families from other um, city states and cut out the hearts of uh, you know their rivals and burn them on the altar. Um, so I mean, the idea that there's any particular morality um, that is advanced um, through psychedelic use, like I'd say, there's quite a bit of reason to doubt that. Um, that said, I mean, like this, again, this opens up to like, you know, big questions. Is there any inherent morality in the first place that humans have, you know, thinker like Noam Chomsky, who before he was, you know, one of America's like biggest public intellectuals and dissidents, he was a linguist. And as a linguist, he talked about a certain syntax that was hard written into our brains, um, the, the language of learning, the syntax um, that uh, allows us to, to perceive symbols. Um, and, and, you know, as Terrence McKenna would say, right now we're communicating through uh, vibrations and small mouth noises. You know, this is how we are communicating information. Uh, but Chomsky would say that, that there is some kind of inherent you know, goodness and morality, but um, even if that were the case, you know, in humans, um, I would still say that most of the time it's going to apply to you know um, this in-group. So whatever uh, tribe one happens to be born into, if you recognize that person as a member of your group, um, then those people are the people you're nice to. Um, I think it's worth noting that many indigenous um, names of tribes for themselves in their language simply translate to the people. So oftentimes, if you are not a member of those tribes, well, you're not considered fully human. Um, So I'm definitely going on a tangent here. Mm -hmm. Um, But I I just, um, you know, I think that when I was writing the piece, there were these, it's like a drip, drip, drip of accumulation of sort of far right figures, whether they were, um, you know, individuals like uh, Jordan Peterson, who's, um, you know, sort of uh, stand in father figure for a lot of wayward young men, um, who's, who's quite conservative, um, talking 
rather clearly about his own experiences with psilocybin, his fascination with ayahuasca, um, or you know some of these neo Nazis getting um, you know, getting caught with powerful hallucinogenic uh, substances. It, it became clear to me that. Uh, we just needed to update the the way that the psychedelic community um, talks about um, about what these psychedelic what these substances substances actually do, um, because there's a bit of romanticizing that is happening, yeah. and I think that comes from people having, you know, beautiful and healing experiences, which is wonderful. Yeah, um, and a lot of those people they have those experiences, and they even report like feeling like there is some sort of agenda or motive. And of course, you know, the, the classic uh, example is people think that the true agenda is love. That that uh, is yeah. the most important thing. And of mm -hmm. course, that's something that is talked about a lot and is a cliche. But, you know, cliches are cliches because they tend to have the most truth in them. And I also feel like the media has pushed an idea of love so that we've kind of gotten it confused hmm. in that love is some state to achieve or something to get when in reality, love is more embracing and accepting every part of life, the ups and the downs. I mean, the Greeks had like six different words for love, you know, so they had like Eros, like sexual love, and agape, which was unconditional love, and uh, there was some sort of like practical love, and filial love, and playful love. I'm probably forgetting one of them, but um, you know, yeah. this is one of the ways that our language, like, uh, sometimes narrows the scope of uh, or muddies the waters, conflates entire um, you know topics, and so um, I mean that feeling of like unity and oneness with the universe like yes yes i've definitely felt that on on psychedelics and i think that it's something that um has been you know foundational in in terms of healing a sort of um existential um angst anxiety um about mortality that uh you know having been raised secular um you know, it's, it's something that sticks with you. Like um, annihilation of the fear of death is certainly a nice side effect of, of any experience. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm an evolutionary biologist as well. And that's sometimes a fancy way of saying I've spent a lot of time, you know, meditating on sex and death in populations. And, um, you know, I'm not sure that I would have chosen that career path had I not had these experiences um, early on in life that caused me to ask sort of larger, just larger questions, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean that that's what happens to everybody. I mean, I have plenty of friends who, um, you know, experiment with psychedelics and they're, they're carpenters and welders and they're, they're not doing this kind of professionally abstract um, whatever it is that I've spent my time doing. <laughs> um, you know, I, I consider these substances as something that um, it's choose your own adventure. Like you can make your, it, the, you know, and this is something my, my colleague and co-host at, um, at Plus Three, Nishay Devino, who's talked about quite a bit in her piece, um, Psychedelics and Identity Politics, um, where she basically, in a nutshell, and I don't want to do too much talk about it because it's definitely 
her work and she does a much better uh, job of talking about it than I ever will. But she talks about how, you know, there are some people who take psychedelics and they're like, yeah, I could take it or leave it. Anybody got any cocaine, you know? And then there are other people who take them and it's like very much like it very much resonates with some, you know, missing part of their, um, their self or, or they then in- incorporate it into their, you know, identity and self sense of self in a very, you know, robust and meaningful way. Um, something that I absolutely relate to. So it's definitely like hit and miss, you know, um, it, out there everywhere, people say, you know, psychedelics are not for everyone. And, you know, I, I could say, yeah, they, they probably aren't for everyone. Um, I would also say that we're very much in our infancy in terms of like dialing in um, appropriate uh, set setting and dosage. Um, so, yeah, jury's still out. So I'm curious, these these expansive experiences and like how you describe that feeling of oneness and connectedness do you feel like that's more of the psychedelics unlocking some inherent part of you or is that somehow a more like a morality that lies within psychedelics because it is a universal experience with psychedelics for a lot of people it's certainly accessible to a lot of people i would i would uh push back a little bit and say that not everybody who takes psychedelics ends up with um some sort of classical mystical experience, you know, mm-hmm. and even those who end up having a mis- mystical experience don't necessarily end up having a unitive experience, you know. Um, so this is where, you know, having some vocabularies is really useful. And this is why I, I really um, do have a lot of respect for, you know, certain members of the psychedelic community uh, for having done the work to provide some of these um, frameworks, you know, frameworks. Yeah. To, to help understand what it is that, you know, we're seeing considering that these are experiences that by definition are um, mixing and muddling our senses in synesthetic kinds of ways uh, to have a, some, some specialized vocabulary is, is useful. So um, yeah, the, the mystical experience is often broken down in a lot of different ways. So certain elements are like uh, timelessness, uh, unity, um, Let's see here, uh, like a sense of well-being um, and contentment. Um, uh, yeah, there's a there's an acronym um, that Thomas Roberts uh, talks about called Potts Music that that writes them all down. Um, so I, I can't remember them all right now. But if you look up like the elements of uni- uh, of a mystical experience, you can you can find them sort of broken out in this way. Um, so so here's the thing, like. Um, definitely one's um, one's prior expectations of what one might get out of psychedelics um, are likely to um, affect what kind of experience you have. On the other hand, like I was just a kid trying to get high, like in Portland, Oregon. I was like, this was um, the date myself here, but this was like the late nineties and you could buy acid on the street. And um, yeah, I, at the time I was, you know, somebody, smoking pot and um you know sneaking booze out of the liquor cabinet of some friend um friend's parents rather and it just was another experience and you know my first i would say mystical experience came about um while taking three uh three blotter hits of at the time it was called kaleidoscope acid 
And I was also 15 because I was having a bit of an acid parade at that time. Um, I took three hits thinking, oh, that's a you know reasonable dose for a teenager to be taking. And I was not correct. Um, <laughs> quite a large dose. Um, although, you know, whatever. There's all kinds of people who want to, um, yeah, you know, there's, I don't know. Um, the dosage doesn't always translate to um, people's response to it because some people are more naturally sensitive. Other people are, you know, what we call hardheads. And I've met these people and I've tripped with some of these people or doing the same stuff. And this person over here is like, I'm on twice what you're on and I'm just starting to feel it. This can yeah, or they be- even feel less like they feel right. less of an experience. Right. This can also be, you know, a side effect of, of, you know, if you're on SSRIs, for instance, um, this can reduce your sensitivity to these substances. But in my even case, your weight and how much you've eaten. Yeah. Um, in my case, that was, that was quite a lot for me. And uh, they had little, little hearts and little onks on the back of each of these um, squares. Um, and I remember, remember some, sometime after, you know, we had, we'd been tripping all night. And so it was definitely on like, I would say it was on the downswing, you know. Um, but there was this moment where uh, I was um, interacting with, uh, with a river rock, actually, that my friend had put in my hand. And it had been cut with like a concrete saw. It wasn't like cut in half. It was just like a divot in it. And something about the tremendous amount of time contained in this rock that had, you know, broken off from some mountain on the Cascades, perhaps, and, uh, and then tumbled from its bedrock uh, through a river, um, something large breaking down into something small through the action of water. I could, I could see all of this happening while holding it uh, until it came into the possession of my friend who was, you know, doing ditch digging and construction work. And he saved it because in a burst of mechanic energy had cut it with a saw until it came to my possession. And somewhere in there, um, as I took a breath in, um, I had this uncanny experience of feeling like I was breathing in unison with the entire universe and my, my consciousness, you know, expanded in a way that had never done before. And uh, it lasted for seemingly a very long time. And, you know, there were all these classical kinds of um, elements to it that I only later learned words for. So, um, yeah, so that was like definitely something that was valuable and you know, it's the sort of thing that catches your attention. And at the same time, like I started this story saying, I was, I was somewhat ambushed by this experience. Like I did not set out to have that. And I think a lot of people end up in that boat with, with psychedelics as they, they go to try and go have a good time and they end up getting uh, quite a bit more than they bargained for and sometimes good and sometimes not so good. Yeah. So, you know, we have to be cognizant that those, those are a part of the possibilities available to us. Yes. Yes. And that's why it seems like it's kind of a mix between there being some sort of agenda or I guess maybe agenda is not the right word, 
but some function of the substance itself, kind of like how you were not expecting that sort of unity experience, kind of like breathing with the whole universe, um, but you ended up having that. But at the same time, there are counterexamples. So it seems like it's some sort of mix between the two. And another point that just came to my mind, especially, you know, since you're an evolutionary scientist, how much do you feel like these plants and substances have an agenda to want to like procreate and to continue their and expand their life like you know evolution tends to do okay so i want to back up real quick quick and uh, address uh, something you said before your question which is that you know in my case even though i was like sort of ambushed by this particular experience that time um that time as as i learned is good practice with psychedelics i was supported by somebody who i was very close to and had a lot of trust with you know um as far as agendas go with regard to psychedelics i'm actually a hell of a lot more concerned about the agendas of anybody anybody you might be with um trust is really key and you know one is entering into a, a rather vulnerable um state of mind and this is actually one of the reasons why we at symposia um have some critique for the medicalizers of psychedelics because um you know if we move towards a future where psychedelics are something that are mediated by uh, say a psychiatric pra practitioner and your insurance company uh, for a tidy sum, um, these people don't particularly know you very well. And their main motivation for being around you is, is that you're keeping their lights on. Whereas a decriminalized situation, one gets to um, curate one's own experiences uh, with people of their own selection. You know, Certainly there's a lot more variable variability as to what might go wrong but at least you have agency in that in that respect so uh, i just wanted to address that real quick but yeah no um, and we'll, we'll get more on to the the legal aspect later on as well okay so um so you were asking about whether or not like you know plants uh, and some of these fungi like might have an agenda to advance their evolutionary strategy and i mean i would say like um a lot of a lot of folks in the life science world like will shy away from uh, this sort of like anthropomorphization of, you know, of different animals and plants and, and such um, th that we sort of distort uh, things by, by turning them into a monkey mind. But I would also say that it's not to say that like, I mean, plants have been around on, on planet earth for 400 million years. Um, they are masters of chemistry and ecosystem management. Um, you know, they're, uh, you're going to tell me that the only organism on planet earth that knows how to eat sunlight isn't smart. Like, yeah, okay. All right, dude. Um, that said, um, there's a guy uh, actually at OSU. Um, his name's Dr. Jason Slot. And um, he's done some really incredible work. He, um, so I'm a plant, I, I'm trained as, um, I guess not currently practicing in any major way, um, a plant uh, evolutionary ecologist. Jason Slot, Dr. Slot, is a um, fungal um, evolutionary genomicist. And um, Dr. Slot 
sequenced the uh, series of enzymes that um, that code for the biosynthesis of psilocybin. Um, Interesting. So, um, by by learning this genetic code, one can say uh, cut those genes and chuck them into yeast or E. coli, as some uh, Florida uh, university researchers have done recently. Um, and um, more importantly, what what Dr. Slot has done um, is you can uh, trace the evolutionary history, um, the evolution of those um, of those genes of those genetic pathways. When did they first? When do they first come into um, existence and, you know, how have they been, what, what perhaps is their ecological context? And so this is where, so I actually interviewed Dr. Slot for Psychedelics Today. Uh, so if you look up Brian Pace um, and Jason Slot, you can, you can hear this interview. So I'm not going to spend too much time on it. But um, ultimately, we talk a lot about these questions about um, why is it that some plants and some fungi and even some animals are producing what in essence are neurochemical mimics. So psilocybin, DMT, DMT is a great example. DMT, if you go to Wikipedia and you look up DMT <laughs> and then you click around until you open up another tab and you open up that tab for, for, uh, for serotonin and you'll see that their structure is quite similar, like very, very similar. And, you know, nature, form, and function are very related. So um, why is it that DMT, which is in so many, um, so many life forms, I mean, plants, many, many plant taxa are in, in some cases producing um, quantities of DMT that are, are measurable by a percent of their, uh, their dry mass, you know, large quantities of neurochemical mimics. Why is that? Why, why, are, why is, uh, you know, cacti uh, producing uh, dopamine uh, analogs? Yeah, you know? that interacts with our minds in such an interesting, unique way where we can have these really in-depth experiences. Yeah. So, I mean, in short, uh, there's been a lot of discussion about this, you know, from the McKenna's. Mm -hmm. uh, so Terrence McKenna has talked a lot about how, you know, psilocybin is like the voice of Gaia and, you know, the mushrooms are speaking to us and they're interstellar travelers and all that kind of stuff. Um, and, and this, this in itself, this whole conversation um, is anthropocentric because yeah. as Dr. Slot has shown, these biochemical pathways actually predate humanity by like hundreds of millions of years. So even in an evolutionary and ecological context they can't possibly be just for us they have to be doing something much more general and it turns out that serotonin um, and the receptors for that neurotransmitter um, are conserved um, evolutionarily meaning you can find serotonin receptors all the way back to yeast and so wow. in some ways these, um, you know, whatever it is that these plants are doing, um, it's certainly not one thing. It's probably lots of things. Yeah, that's fascinating. I didn't know that, that it predates humans. Sure. And that maybe that these molecules are a chemical pathway for these different species to communicate in one form or another. Also, communication is interesting because, I mean, communication is like, essential. How do you define that? 
uh, some kind of cipher. Um, you know, chemical messaging is something that's uh, widely studied, and um, it's uh, all kinds of things contain information. Yeah, and um, just just one uh, kind of idea from the McKenna's, you know, Terrence McKenna. I found an interesting theory that he proposed about. Uh, like DMT specifically and its purpose was almost like he described it as mother earth's uh, like way to like bring humanity back to homeostasis because we're currently destroying the planet. And that was its way to like, like, Hey, this is what you're doing. Stop. And like kind of self-regulate and self-protect mother earth. You know, I, I think that's a really interesting idea. I don't necessarily uh, subscribe to it, but um really fascinating to just kind of theorize about. I mean, I'll say this. I, I wish it were true, but I'm not sure that it is because while there has been an association, um, they've done some, they did a, a, a study um, on, I think it was Imperial college at London um, did a study associating um, oh wait, no, maybe it was Hopkins. I don't know. It's not in front of me. Um, but it, uh, it, there was a study that showed that, you know, environmentalism is, uh, environmental beliefs is correlated with, um, psychedelic experience, lifetime psychedelic experience, you know, and, uh, you know, correlation isn't causation. We, we don't know. Um, that said, some of these experiences, um, can dissolve the boundaries between subjects and other. Um, subject and object, um, inside and outside. And, you know, I, I have had um, certain experiences that have, you know, been super like nature mediated, um, feeling um, very much a part of cycles and rhythms. Um, and, you know, with sometimes very potent visuals that uh, place oneself in, um, in this cycle, this dance of death and life. And so I certainly can see um, from my own experience how one's environmental spirit, you know, could be stirred uh, by this. But I don't know. I mean, you look at San Francisco and a lot of these like folks trying to cash in and make a buck on psychedelics. Um, it certainly hasn't swayed these people. Um, this is this is where I sort of wrap things up with Lucy in the Sky with Nazis is starting to talk about um, psychedelic capitalism and how, you know, if these psychedelics are uh, making us all better people, uh, more environmentally sound people, um, why does it seem like the product launch is going to wrap things that grow from shit with no, you know, uh, assistance on their own being psychedelic mushrooms with a bunch of plastic. And, um, you know, you can, I think there's a group, uh, marketing psilocybin micro dose nasal spray. Um, <laughs> like that doesn't sound very environmentally sound to me, particularly when you could just, you know, have these substances growing from essentially agricultural waste. Um, Mm -hmm. so if it's just one of those things like if these people are at all experienced themselves why didn't it change their mind yeah that uh you know that connects beautifully to a quote that i really really enjoyed from your article and that was if those that have benefited from real curative consciousness expanding properties of psychedelics want to see the world improve in some directional way 
they should build power with broader drug reform and climate movements during the 99.99% of the time that they are not on drugs. And yeah, that just goes to show it's so important that we take action. And I personally believe that we owe it to these substances and to ourselves to best integrate psychedelics into our society in a fair and progressive way so that everyone can have access. And it's not compartmentalized and patented in a way where it's just more strive for control. Yeah, I mean, and and I would say that you know it's it's really great um, to hear you articulate your your beliefs and desires for the world um, in such a clear way, because I think it's important for all of us to spend some time um, clarifying for ourselves and then articulating so other people know where we stand, um, what our ethics are, what is it that we will put up with, and what is it that we will fight against. Um, it's a way of holding ourselves accountable. It's a way of envisioning and co-creating uh, both the present and the future. And I think that um, there are a lot of forces in the world that would very much, well, you know, leaders and authorities have this all figured out so you don't have to think about it. In fact, you just have to go into the marketplace of ideas and select an ideology. You don't have to develop a critical sense. And um, I very much reject that because there's this, um, there, there's a, like some stages of moral development and, you know, like toddlers, I'm thinking about infant development because I have a, a, you know, a young son. Um, toddlers, anything they pick up is theirs. Anything they want, um, it is only right that they should have it. Um, you know, there's this egoic morality where I am offended if you do anything that is against my, my desires. And most of us grow up um, beyond that, although notably um, some of us don't. And then, you know, usually there's a, a second level of moral development where we, um, we essentially start to accept whatever it is, the, the laws of the land, um, the taboos of our culture, um, are we defer to authorities and we say, you know, that which is is good for um, you know, institutions is good for me, and I would say most people stay there. Um, but the third level is one that is trickier because it requires you to evaluate all situations based on your morality. That. Um, says that, yeah, you know, sometimes the, the people in front of you, the people with power and control in your world, sometimes they're not right. And mm -hmm. even though it's difficult, you need to object. Yeah. You know? They don't have the best intention for you that yeah. you might have thought previously. And yeah, it's actually, it, it, I think that requires a lot of bravery to take that final step because that requires you to question everything you've ever known about life about yourself, your identity. And one thing that I think you come to realize when you really dig deep um, and find out what's really going on is that there is an agenda to keep us sick and divided so that we can be profited off of. And yeah, I mean, like this is one of the reasons why on Symposium we spend a lot of time um, naming the system. Um, the system that you know the machine that we are supposed to rage against um, it has a name it's called capitalism and 
you know, capitalism is a hierarchical system that, uh, you know, separates people out into uh, the workforce and, you know, these boy genius entrepreneurs um, who skim the, the profit, the, the extra surplus value of the labor of the, the vast majority of us who own nothing and are forced to sell our labor. Um, so, I mean, yeah, there's definitely a lot uh, to be said about the system that we live under right now where, yeah, a lot of uh, existing social um, arrangements are quite exploitative. And so, you know, given that I'd like to live in a sustainable world, one that um, has more um, freedom, uh, as in freedom to manage one's own time to do with, <coughs> excuse me, what one pleases um, to pursue one's interests and passions, um, yeah, we're going to have to do a little work to get there. Yeah, well put. So bringing it back one more time to Lucy in the Sky with Nazis, yeah, there was one example in that article that really like stuck out to me and really got me to just like just interested in digging deeper and finding out like more about this individual and that individual is Andrew Anglin. I think, I think partially inspired because uh, like I grew up in, I mean, I'm currently in Columbus, Ohio as well. Uh, this right. is where I'm born and raised. And yeah. um, it's like hearing like uh, a quote here, he did LSD at school or while wandering through the scenic high banks, Metro park, uh, North of the city. He took ketamine, ate psychedelic mushrooms, snorted cocaine on the weekends Chugged Robitussin, Robotripped so much that he damaged his stomach and would vomit in the trash cans at school. Um, so yeah, it's just like, I guess like seeing, like, I, I guess connecting with some part of me that like also goes to the local parks and trips, but clearly is a very different individual. Um, so as I dug deeper, um, I found out how much trauma this individual has. And just to give context uh, for the viewers, um, Andrew Anglin is a neo-Nazi and uh, proliferator of hate speech and hate activism. And um, yeah, not really a guy you'd want to uh, hang out with. <laughs> but, He's um, the founder of a website called The Daily Stormer. Yeah. Um, so if, if you want to talk about a little bit about that. Um, well, I'll say this. I've met in my days um, a lot of people with a lot of different kinds of trauma. And mm -hmm. um, I would say that everyone ends up in this veil of tears, uh, you know, with some, some sort of trauma, whether it's, you know, neglect um, or abuse. Um, one can have trauma from simply not being loved. Um, and one can have trauma from being, you know, physically assaulted or uh, be belittled uh, in a, in a concert concerted kind of way, uh, malnourished, what have you. Um, and yet, I think that of the number of people who I've met who've had trauma, those who've grown up to be neo-Nazis are in the serious minority. Mm. So, um, I mean... Here's the thing. We all make choices and we, um, you know, we can, I think there's something in, in sort of um, therapeutic spaces about victim mentality and survivor mentality. And 
um, I would say in neo-Nazi spaces, there's very much a, a victimhood mentality that says like, ah, well, the white race has, um, you know, been maligned and we're being, uh, you know, controlled by the Jews um, to keep us, uh, you know, subordinate um, and multicultural and all this kind of um, very uh, twisted logic that says both that, you know, the whites are the, the master race, but we're also being, um, you know, subjugated and, and, and out-competed and white genocide and what have you. A lot of, a lot of different sort of narratives that never really seem to change that much. And, um, you know, the thing about um, England that I thought was you know, interesting is that like, yeah, you know, here's, here's a guy who's very much like the two of us who, uh, you know, grew up in some kind of somewhat middle-class like backgrounds um, in a capital city um, was exposed to, you know, psychedelics in, in this sort of illicit um, prohibitionist context. And yet this individual turned into a neo-Nazi and you have a podcast on, um, you know, healing. And um, so I can see how this is like, you know, definitely, you know, something that would be interesting to you from that, that story, because it is, it is an interesting uh, question, the roads that people take. Absolutely. I, I, but I, I wanted to talk about England um, in the piece because, um, you know, if, if we were to believe that psychedelics are somehow inherently, you know, healing on their own, um, that they make us into more moral and better individuals. Um, why did England turn into uh, neo-Nazi after what sounds like very extensive psychedelic journeying? And that is the question, absolutely. And that's why I really found this such an interesting example because I've done a lot of personal work and study about trauma and the way it affects us in our actions going forward. And again, to see how there's two like very different crossroads here, very different parallels between, you know, myself and England. Um, and that's what I think like some quotes to explain and give more context about what England experienced growing up. Um, a few quotes here, uh, England burst out crying after Allison, his, uh, girlfriend drunkenly kissed someone else. And then he ran outside, bashed his head on the sidewalk over and over again. England's favorite online destination was Rotten.com, which collected images of mangled corpses, deformities, and sexual perversions. Two kids beat him into a gutter once. England once bashed, bashing his head into the walls of his bedroom, see we have a pattern here, uh, in such a frenzy that his mother had to call the police. And he sometimes tried to kiss other boys, including one black student he especially liked, which, you know, obviously later he, as a neo-Nazi, is anti-gay and racist. So... It's that to me is shows a big, long line of abuse and trauma that clearly did not get addressed, did not get dealt with, did not get healed in the right way. And it also goes to show while he was having these psychedelic experiences, he didn't have proper set and setting. He, it, they weren't intended to be used as healing. And in fact, I could even see how without that intention, you could the psychedelics should actually add to the continual diluting of his mindset, especially you know seeing images and propaganda of things like on Rotten.com with these horrible things. So how that could really 
create him to spiral down over and over again into this dark, dark place where the only thing he can relate to is hate and this conflict and this pain because it never got healed. And also how with the example of, you know, be, you know, having like some uh, sexual tendencies and then later to be very outwardly, you know, anti-gay and anti-racist, how trauma undealt can completely flip your world and your view around for the worse. And is why like, that's my personal inspiration for even doing this podcast and, you know, deciding to drop out of college to pursue life coaching and healing and, and, and psychedelic healing because I've experienced a lot of trauma in my life. You know, just, I don't want to get too into it, but like I watched my brother die in front of me on vacation when I was very young and to experience that and many other traumas growing up and to be able to heal from that. And especially using psychedelics, that's actually what woke me up to like the reality um, of what was really going on to this trauma and to heal from that and to have firsthand experience that it doesn't have to be that way. And it's not hopeless. Things can change and you can live a happy, peaceful, positive experience. That's yeah, why I, think, I mean, yeah, I like, don't get me wrong. I mean, I absolutely uh, believe and have experienced, um, you know, some of the transformative and healing power of a variety of psychedelic substances. I mean, I think that's their best use uh, beyond simple um, you know, explore, exploration and or initiation, you know, um, I think that that's always, um, been among their purview in indigenous and traditional cultures that have, um, have carried the flame of, of psychedelic use into the modern era, despite tremendous repression and trauma inflicted upon these communities during a time called colonization. Um, so, I mean, the power of these substances to um, hold communities together, to heal individuals, to bring uh, wayward individuals back into um, the fold um, through ceremony. Um, yeah, I, I think it's the highest use of these substances. Um, there's an old African proverb that says that, you know, uh, and it, it specifically talks about the boys. It says, um, you know, if the adults fail to initiate the boys, um, they will burn down the village just to feel the warmth. And, um, you know, so there is something to be said about um, toxic masculinity, um, the the scripts the conflicting scripts of young men in the united states um and how all of these combined you know with with abuse and trauma and confused um you know sexual identity and such can can really distill um from from this you know trauma and fear into um into hate and aggression and um just vicious malevolence. Um, I definitely see, see that. And so, you know, every, every Anglin is, is a, a lost opportunity of a functioning community. And I would argue that, you know, the, 
the the economic system that wants everybody on um, a block to own a lawnmower is one that is um, actively invested in destroying community um, because our ability to share and cooperate um, these get in the way of basic marketing goals. Um, I mean, if you just look at the way uh, resources are extracted from the communities that they are extracted from, you will see an active undermining of the of functional communities. Um, having spent some time in in uh, essentially places where resources are extracted from, um, these are these are traumatized people, and it's a part of the uh, the process of of extractivism. So. Um, you know, I mean, I think that all of these uh, substances are incredibly powerful tools uh, for doing uh, a number of things. But I think that as, you know, adults, as critical thinkers, we really have to um, look around uh, systemically at the world that we currently live in and think about how we can intervene in ways um, systemically to live in a world that we would like to live in and that we would like our children to live in. Yeah, absolutely. That systemic change is really what's going to make a difference because the system is what is creating the results like that separation you talk about, like the exploitation of other countries, of traumatized people, and even possibly what created a situation like England. And why I truly believe it's more important now and ever that these conversations are had, like the one we're having right now, and that the, like the spread of psychedelics and psychedelic healing specifically, because we're a sick, sick world right now. If you really just look around, you see how much fear and division there is. And that's one thing that I've personally gained a lot from these experiences is my, my own internal systems have been radically shifted and for the better. Go ahead. Uh, In what way? I'm curious. Yeah. So um, just to give you some context about my life, um, after the resulting um, experience of, you know, my brother passing away uh, for the next eight years, I went down a very, very dark downward spiral for about eight years. Uh, I got so bad to the point where I would, dread waking up in the morning to just being myself i would dread falling asleep at night because i had such a tro- so so much problem just letting go of control even to fall asleep and like you know i felt like killing myself on a weekly sometimes daily basis um, you know i'm not alone i don't i don't feel like i'm special in that regard i know other people have experienced even worse traumas of course um, it's not a contest absolutely not but um what I've gained is I, so the first psychedelic experience I had was I smoked DMT oh, wow. when I was 17. Deep end. Um, yes. Uh, I had, I'd known, I'd researched psychedelics. I knew about them. I was actually really uh, uh, excited to try them eventually. Uh, watching people like psych substance explain, you know, very crazy experiences and um, the benefits of them. And yeah, my friend, Oh, what's this? I'm like, dmt and i'm like what you have dmt like what (laughs) just out of the blue and uh you know on the spot i wasn't sure i was gonna try it and just made this decision too 
Um, and as soon as I inhaled, my body was flooded with this, you know, some people call it Kundalini energy, just this electricity. And I could feel it in every single cell of my body. And every time it sparked, it's almost like the feeling like when your, your hand falls asleep and it's like that tingly feeling, but every single tingle was bliss. The most loving feeling I've ever felt. And I actually heard like a message, like it was almost like a message was given to me in this experience. And it was very simple. Um, it was, it's okay. And what that meant to me was many things. It meant that I'm okay. I'm not broken. There's nothing wrong with me. It meant that everything's okay. Everything is happening just the way it's supposed to. It also told me that I could achieve this state of bliss without drugs and that it's possible and that I can just work on myself and create that for myself, which of course that was incredibly profound and changed my life forever before the experience. Um, I was the type who loved to watch like atheists who like debate, like people like the amazing atheist on YouTube or like the armored skeptic who love to just like bash religion and think spirituality is nonsense and baseless. And I really would, yeah, that's basically what I thought about the world. And then after that experience, I had firsthand experience with some greater force, some greater power, God, source, whatever you want to call it, doesn't fucking matter. And I was no longer an atheist after just that five, 10 minute experience. And uh, from there, I just kind of dedicated my life to working on myself. And I'm <laughs> millions of magnitudes happier of a person since. That's, um, that's a great story. I think that, um, you know, I, I, I wish that uh, you know, everybody had that, that, um, that positive reaction to these substances. And I think that, um, the way that we get there is that we, um, you know, we provide uh, cultural scripts um, for what the appropriate use of these substances looks like. Um, and I think that there are some, some individuals already, you know, working on that, but um, very much this sort of thing is still within the fringe. And I think that we should be leery of, the idea that to mainstream these substances, to bring them to a broader audience and, and have these cultural narratives be wider um, in their acceptance and knowledge, uh, that, that that means we should automa automatically commodify uh, and sell and market these substances. Because um, there's just something about commodifying the sacred that sounds a little off. Um, you know, the, the idea that we could have a, a branded enlightenment, um, it just, uh, yeah, it doesn't sit well with me. And unfortunately, in the, in the era that we live in right now, um, literally anything that is, um, you know, desired uh, or useful in this world, uh, there is somebody out there who would like to attach a price tag to it. Um, I sometimes joke that right now there's um, somebody on Wall Street and another guy in Silicon Valley, and they're both staying up late at night trying to figure out how to um, privatize air, you know, 
Um, so we we have to. Uh, <laughs> it rides me like space balls with the cans in the air, just like just keep oh. just keeping them up at night, you know. Um, <laughs> so I mean, I just think that like you know these substances, they you know they've the the brotherhood of eternal love for instance if you ever go and watch the um, uh, the documentary orange sunshine they're essentially motivated or at least they say now um to get into the biz of uh, lsd manufacture and distribution uh, effectively to drive down the price they wanted to make it so dang cheap that um anybody who wanted uh had access and i think now more than ever um as we see uh corporate actors like uh compass pathways doing things like attempting to patent psilocybin um Mm -hmm. and these psychedelic clinics opening up um where you know, in a country right now where we're currently on, in the middle of a pandemic, um, we have a, a healthcare crisis where, uh, you know, your average individual doesn't have access to uh, healthcare, let alone mental healthcare, let alone psychedelic mental healthcare. Um, that if we if we just cede too much uh, power and control over these substances to those who are invested in making a buck, well, we get what we get. And um, what I argue is we get less. So just food for thought. Yeah, that was actually the exact topic I was about to bring up next. So it was actually perfect you said that. Um, And a question I have is like, can these substances, can they really be monopolized? Because for example, like anyone can just like grow mushrooms in their own home. Now, obviously they could try to make that illegal, but... I mean, it is, is illegal in most, well, most places. Well, I mean, like, if it, like, in the future, let's say they are to make psychedelic use, like, medicalize, then keep it illegal to grow your own, basically. That's exactly um, the plan, you know, yeah. is, to, is to make um, a, me- a medical model. I mean, currently, uh, a doctor can prescribe you opiates, but if you try and grow um, opium poppies, you know, you will uh, be subject to arrest, you know, so. Yeah. And so another question I have for you is like, why is this a problem? Why should people be this monopolization? Why should we, why should the viewers be concerned? I mean, I would ask those listening, um, do you like your internet provider? Do you like, uh, you know, would you like to change uh, who provides your uh, electricity? Um, do you like the fact that half of all rental properties are owned by two companies that, um, you know, our media comes from five different companies, their food comes from a handful of other, uh, international conglomerates. I think when people really think about these sorts of things, um, you know, the idea of, uh, monopolies is, is, you know, on a basic level, somewhat unsettling, but we can also point to like very real ways in which when you corner the market, you're not subject to any kind of, um, you know, you, you, you can set the price. Um, you can make sure that there's only one you know option. And I mean, I think the idea of some kind of like strip mall psychedelia is not something that uh, people were originally envisioning when they, uh, you know, we're starting to talk about you know, coming out of the psychedelic closet and, and, you know, having a conversation about drug reform. So, I mean, um, you know, that's, that's generally like what I would say. I think ultimately the question um, does come back to access. 
Um, I mean, in the current system that we have right now, um, you can get on a plane and fly to Costa Rica and um, go drink ayahuasca. You can get on a plane and go to the Netherlands and eat mushrooms uh, in a completely legal context. Um, but, you know, that's kind of like saying, you know, you can uh, become a millionaire. Like, yeah, you can, um, maybe, if you're lucky, if you have a lot of help and intergenerational wealth in the first place. I mean, right now I'd have to rearrange quite a bit to hop on a plane to go, you know, to the Netherlands. Um, and even though I might be able to do it, uh, that's a function of my you know, economic privilege in this world. Um, these are substances that are accessible, yes, but mostly to the rich. And I would like, as we continue to discuss these substances and uh, some kind of reintegration into society, some sort of uh, evidence-based drug policy, uh, that if we you know, remove the legal restrictions on substances that were outlawed without any scientific backing for reasonings as to why they were outlawed, uh, to be clear, psychedelics were outlawed for political reasons, um, you know, to... To slow walk, um, you know their uh, their legalization, or rather their their decriminalization, um, is something that ultimately only serves certain vested interests. So, that's my my view. So, based on that, what are some constructive actions that we can take today in order to keep the healing in the hands of the people? Hmm. I mean, that's a hard one. I mean, the, the reality is, is that um, if we look at the status of, of, you know, psychedelic therapy, um, there's probably only a couple of hundred people who have gone through any legal medical treatment as of now. And yet much of the enthusiasm surrounding um, the use of psychedelics uh, for therapeutic contexts comes from stories just like yours, um, which I am imagining had nothing to do with whether or not that substance was legal. Um, so, you know, there, there's a lot of enthusiasm towards the healing potential of psychedelics because a lot of people have had healing experiences while using psychedelics. And yet, all of those experiences, the vast majority, 99.99999% of them were done so um, in, a, in an underground and illegal context. You know? So in some ways, they're already in the hands of the people. Um, on the other hand, uh, yeah, the war on some drugs um, used by some people uh, certainly makes it difficult and risky for anybody to engage in any use of an illicit, illicit substance. Um, so for that reason, I think advocation of decriminalization, whether it is the decriminalization of certain substances like these decriminalized nature um, you know, efforts that have gone on, or as I and Symposia advocates, the full decriminalization of all drugs that are currently scheduled, yes, including heroin, yes, including methamphetamine, so that we can start addressing these uh, substance abuse problems, because of course there are, we're in Ohio, um, epicenter of the fentanyl crisis. We can start addressing substance, um, you know, disordered substance use 
rather uh, rather than say abuse um, as a public health issue, you know, rather than a carceral uh, punitive issue, you know, um, and I think that there are models for that. We we at symposia advocate um, for po Portuguese style decriminalization, which you know, um, Portugal has universal health care. Portugal um, says that you know you can have you can possess legally, um, or rather, you will not be prosecuted for possessing uh, what's considered to be like a ten-day supply of just about anything. Um, and you know, if you end up, you know, um, using drugs in a disordered and/or problematic way, you know, there may be interventions, but those interventions generally lead one down a path towards treatment. So, um, yeah, there are there are other models. Another world is possible. Ultimately, I mean, we saw in the last year um, several cities um, decriminalize. Um, mushrooms and mm -hmm. in the case of like Oakland um, and I think Berkeley as well. Um, mm -hmm. you know, yeah, Oakland, Santa Cruz, and Denver. Game. Right. Yeah. Um, these were things that people never thought would be possible, you know, and yet what ultimately happened was people organized at their local level and they agitated for specific policy changes. And if you're really fired up about this, um, there is a path um, towards doing that. And as a result, you know, uh, about a hundred other cities in the uh, country have uh, taken up that charge. Um, but as I um, mentioned in Lucy in the Sky with Nazis, I think that, you know, um, if you've been healed by psychedelics, like in some way, like I think that, one has an obligation to, you know, help help people who've been um, healed by stimulant use. Um, there are some people who have uh, all kinds of reasons for, it's called self-medicating. And we've been talking about trauma on this piece. The biggest predictor, or at least one of the biggest predictors for drug use of any sort um, in a disordered way, in an addictive way, is childhood trauma. And so the way that we are um, using public policy in, in drugs um, is as a cudgel to essentially um, punish you know, children who've already been traumatized who are now grown up adults trying to deal with the aftermath. And I think that's really, really unfortunate. Yeah. And I think that brings up an important, an important point too, is that, the drugs themselves are not solely what's causing the addiction. Addiction stems from trauma and the drug. And yeah, I mean, medicating the trauma. 90% of, of drug users have uh, experienced no, um, you know, no real problem as a result. Um, you know, so, some of the, um, yeah, anti-addiction community would call these people functioning addicts, but um, why not just call them functioning? You know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I was just listening to a podcast earlier where uh, a guy came on to you know tell a little bit about his story, and he was a crack and heroin addict, and um, was obviously addicted to that. And uh, after getting off of those substances and dealing with the trauma. He tested himself by trying the subs trying crack again mm. 
mm-hmm. to see whether he was still addicted mm-hmm. and he wasn't. Yeah. So the line that once an addict, always an addict is bullshit. Yeah. It's Gabor Mate true. has uh, quite a man named um, a therapist named Gabor Mate yeah. um, has a lot to say about, about healing the underlying trauma to, to deal with the, the addiction. And um, yeah, I've definitely um, met people who have done that work and have, um, you know, contrary to say, um, you know, NA or AA that say abstinence uh, of abstinence um, of of substance use, abstinence only um, kinds of function. Not only is this not something that lines up with the data. Um, it's something that sets people up for, for failure and for shame when they, they can't live up to it. It often encourages binging when one, um, you know, somehow falls off the wagon and you have to turn in your five-year coin for a one-day coin. Uh, might as well make it count, right? Um, instead of, you know, saying, hey, like in a, in a harm reduction approach, um, any positive change should be in, embraced. Like, okay, you're not drinking a 12-pack of Coors a day and now you're drinking a six-pack of Coors a day that is, that is okay. That's good. You mm-hmm. know? Um, and, uh, harm reduction is a, is a philosophy that works. Absolutely. And, uh, a friend of mine actually came up with a term that I love that I think is even better than harm reduction and that's risk reduction oh, on yeah, top sure. of just being an alliteration. Mm-hmm. It's not implying that there's any harm. Sure. And I mean, I would, I would even go uh, further to say that, you know, we as a society are barely ready to talk about harm reduction. Um, and because we, you know, have uh, married ourselves and our identities to our occupations and work as, as some sort of inherent moral good, um, we have a little ways to go before we start talking about pleasure production. Um, but that said, I think, um, it's, it's perfectly fine and healthy to embrace a number of ways of um, increasing pleasure in one's life. Um, you know, there's, there's, uh, and a lot of that lies um, directly within the body and some of that can be chemically mediated, hopefully in, uh, you know, consensual and informed ways. Yeah, absolutely. So what do you feel like, is the future, the likely future of psychedelics in a matter of five years? Hmm. Well, we have, you know, we have interesting um, debates uh, happening right now. I think that uh, we'll probably see more states um, and or cities, um, hopefully states, um, uh, relaxing some of the prohibitionist policies towards uh, psychedelics in particular. And hopefully, uh, you know, Oregon, Oregon has a, um, my home state of Oregon has a, a statewide initiative for the decriminalization of all drugs on the ballot right now. So um, that's, that's a, a hopeful development, whether or not it passes is, is a whole entirely other um, you know, animal. I think though, you know, we have to think about the context here where, you know, we have, uh, prohibitionists absolutely marshalling to roll back all of the um, the victories that uh, you know the drug reformers have won uh, thus far. These people are not um, you know giving up, 
and with uh, a demagogue and a neo-fascist like Donald Trump at the helm um, and, and perhaps even set um, for another four years um, of, of power in, in, in the United States. This, um, these could be, could be grim and dark times. Um, on the other hand, um, you know, MAPS has been saying that they're very, very close to, you know, full rollout of um, medicalized M- MDMA PTSD th- therapy. And if their change model is correct, um, this may go a long way towards changing the public's idea about uh, ideas and conception about um, psychedelics generally. Perhaps, perhaps they're correct. Um, perhaps it is true that um, the medical route is the best and most trusted way to um, gain public acceptance towards psychedelics. Um, but I mean, I said I would essentially say uh, we should pursue a, a yes and model. Um, and I would like to see what what's already happening continue to progress. Like yes. I think medicalization of psychedelics is something that's useful. There are certainly people who can benefit from um, a drug therapy combination with a trained professional who knows how to address, who is trauma-informed um, you know, with somebody's uh, difficulties. And I would also go so far as to say that a lot of people absolutely do not resonate with the professional kind of uh, setting of a clinical medical environment um, and will not benefit in that way. They don't trust these institutions. Many minority and um, you know, for good reason. communities have, have, have a lot to, to disrupt, distrust about these institutions. Some people who have been in to want to start their psychedelic experience by filling out a bunch of forms and obeying a bunch of um, protocol. Um, so Yes, I think someone should be available to have uh, a psychedelic experience in a spa or in a clinic, but also in the privacy of their own home with people they know and trust. So um, I think the the key fight, though, is, you know, uh, and this is where monopoly is bad, is that I, I don't think anybody really wants to be told how to have experiences that are the closest uh, to their hearts, you know. Um, I think we all would like to to choose our own adventure. Yeah, absolutely. So one concept from a guy named Barry Cooper, who is the creator of Never Get Busted. Uh, one point of view I really like from him is that like shamans aren't necessary for a healing experience um so i mean with regard to shamans like i'll say this like it's it's an old it's an old vocation it may be it may be in competition with prostitution for for the oldest profession you know um and uh i i have um had the you know the unique opportunity to work with um a, a couple of, of those who could consider themselves, you know, um, vegetalistas or marakame uh, shaman types, right? And um, I would say that I'm always skeptical of anybody who adopts the guru role, 
Um, I, I think that there are inherent uh, power and authority dynamics that, you know, can and often do result in abuses. Um, that said, I mean, in some ways, uh, some of these individuals can, in the best case of, of scenarios, function kind of as a, um, like a, a whitewater rafting guide, you know? Yeah, you can get downriver um, on your own. Uh, you might take a few bumps uh, or you could, you know, go with somebody who um, has a little bit of experience and they can help you navigate those bumps in a more, um, you know, comfortable, uh, quick, safe way. Um, I would say that's the best case scenario for these things. Um, generally, I mean, we, we, we put a lot of um, baggage on psychedelics. Psychedelics are drugs. And they interact with your neurotransmitters. If you take them, you will have an effect. Um, and sometimes that effect is, um, you know, very profound. Um, depend, it's dose dependent, right? But I think the, the area that shamans work in is that other very important um, uh, component of what we call the, the central dogma of psychedelics. We have dose and we have... Um, uh, set so one's mindset. Why are you taking psychedelics? Are you doing so for healing, for fun, for exploration? Um, and uh, and setting. And shamans are uh, manipulators of the setting. Um, and it's important to acknowledge and recognize that they are manipulating that setting, and they are doing so for certain effect. They're often, you know, drumming or sing, singing or applying, you know, sensory alterations such as smoke. The very key moments in uh, one's experience that tracks the dose response um, curve, the, the whole um, arc of the experience. Now, when done skillfully, uh, that, that can be incredibly synergistic and wonderful. And, you know, in some respects, this is what's happening, um, you know, at Burning Man and, and other festivals, like, you know, where, you know, the people who are putting on these festivals absolutely know that their audience is engaging in this kind of, um, you know, uh, alteration of their, their consciousness. And so they construct an environment, uh, a playground, uh, some, some kind of uh, sensory uh, feedback that, that's you know absolutely designed to heighten one's experience. Um, so I mean, I guess what I would say is that like, insofar as uh, one can um, mitigate some of the inevitable uh, inevitable problems with power dynamics, um, you know, do I believe that one needs a shaman? Like, no. What? Where did where did the first uh, person who ever tried psychedelics? Where did they get their their shaman? You know, the person. <laughs> The person who, uh, you know, they became on the that cactus. Yeah, exactly. It's uh, it, it has to have been such, like, unless we're talking about an unbroken chain of shamanism that goes back to our lizard ancestors, which I have a hard time believing. Um, so in some ways, I think that, you know, there's always the opportunity to self-initiate. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I think this is a good place to wrap. I've, absolutely loved this just getting to chat with you um i just so appreciate you coming on to the podcast it was really some awesome conversations yeah thank you for having me on and i really wish you all the best luck with uh with your your journey and with your podcast and um you know let me know if you want to talk again sometime
Yeah, absolutely. Is there anything you wanted to, any side note you wanted to leave the podcast on? I would just say that, you know, if one has decided to um, experiment, experiment with one's own consciousness, um, you know, do more reading uh, than less um, because there's, there's not just, you know, the risk mitigation, but there's also like what happens afterwards that's important to, uh, to consider. And, um, you know, in, in many ways, uh, navigating these experiences in a way that uh, has good outcomes um, is, is very much akin to a game that we're actually always playing in life. And that game is who can you trust? If you play that game well um, while journeying on psychedelics, then you have a better chance than most of coming out the other side uh, better. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Brian. This has been fantastic. Cheers, Oliver. Peace out, man. I hope you enjoyed the first episode of Hello Healing. I had an amazing time with Brian Pace discussing all those various topics. We went super deep, and I was really happy with how that turned out. If you're interested in learning more about Brian and the different work he's doing with Find the Others and Mind Manifest, um, go check out his Facebook page. Uh, there'll be links to all of that so you can get connected, you can get informed, and yeah, it's just a wonderful opportunity there. Also, if you want to check out his podcast, Plus Three, that is currently on Spotify, so go check that out. If you enjoyed this podcast, go ahead and leave a follow. Next week, I'm going to be interviewing Greg Lawrence, who is a psychedelic integration specialist who currently practices in California. So really excited for that one. If you want to see more of the stuff that I'm doing, go ahead and check out my YouTube channel, Energetic Expansion, or my Instagram, which is expandyourenergy underscore. So that's YouTube, Energetic Expansion, and Instagram, expandyourenergy underscore. Thanks again for watching. I'll see you next week. Peace.